Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. This is a special installment of the uh, Fifth Column podcast, recorded on Thursday. What is this, June 7th? June something. Special June, June, June 8th. 8th. June, June 8th. 8th. Comey, Comey Day. Day. Yes, Comey International Day. Comey Day. June 8th, 2017. <laughs> uh, this is Camille Foster of Freethink uh, here with Michael Moynihan. This is your uh, weekly rhetorical assault on the media, although sometimes we're more often than weekly and sometimes less often than weekly. In either case, this is, uh, I think I've, I've come to, I've started calling this like full contact political analysis and media criticism. But um, Michael Moynihan reads a lot of books um, and he introduces uh, many of us to a great many books. I, I try to read books as well. You but read, I think you read more than I do. That's not possible. You always got nine things no, going on that Kindle. You've read most things. Um, I find out about things. And one thing that I found out about recently was uh, Timothy Snyder, um, who is a professor of history at Yale University um, and the author of many books. Uh, Spectacular books and interesting things like Bloodlands, Europe's uh, Europe between Hitler and Stalin that's from 2010, Black Earth, uh, the Holocaust as history. Also very good. Yeah. And his most recent book um, on tyranny, 20 lessons from the 20th century. Um, he uh, he joins us and we are going to chat with him a bit about uh, why he wrote this book, why it's important um, and uh, why it's all Trump's fault. And kind after of. and after because we have limited time with Professor Snyder and afterwards, uh, Camille and I will we'll have a little chat about uh, about the book and about our conversation with Professor Snyder. The fifth column, column, column. Uh, well, column, Professor column. Timothy Snyder, um, I have to say, I have to admit, um, I, I didn't know if I misremembered this, but in 2010, when I was at um, Reason Magazine, I was a little more in my sort of more ideological times, I was asked to choose the best book of the year. And uh, in the, my response, I said, there's too much to choose from, but I will choose Bloodlands uh, by Professor Timothy Snyder uh, from Yale University, who joins us now. But uh, Professor Snyder, you are a historian. You've been writing fantastic stuff for the New York Review of Books, among other places, about the situation in Ukraine and about Russia. But you change your attention uh, around November, after a certain someone was elected, um, and you wrote a book called On Tyranny. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that book. So I'm going to do the annoying thing of, of messing with the premise of your question, because sure. for me, there's much more continuity between Ukraine and the U.S. than it might seem um, at, at first glance. The re I started writing about Ukraine during the revolution and the Russian invasion precisely because I realized that uh, there just wasn't much press or much rational discussion in the U.S. I was struck by how much the Russian propagandistic version was actually framing the discussion of events that I knew well and often people that I knew well. And I've noticed since then, since 14, you know, going into 2015, 2016, how a number of things which already happened in Russia, already happened in Ukraine, started to happen in the United States. Uh, the most obvious example is fake news, which even as a word actually comes from Russian, that, that, that notion of fake was actually pr very common in Russian and Ukrainian before we started talking about it. And now the, the thing has obviously come here 
as well. So yeah, I took a certain turn in November, which I didn't expect to turn to, to make, but it, it is very much informed by the fact that I think that the Trump phenomenon is part of a larger global phenomenon, which can be understood that way. And also that it has some historical antecedents that are worth understanding. Well, I appreciate you shifting the premise of the question because it may, because it, it allows us to go from Ukraine to the US. Give me a couple of examples of how you saw Russian fake news penetrating uh, the English language media, whether it's through Sputnik or RT or one of those propaganda organs are being picked up uh, by others. And this is something, incidentally, that that is uh, bipartisan. You see it on the right and the left of people. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's rather odd, and I've talked about this quite a bit on the show, uh, to see Stephen F. Cohen um, um, on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News frequently. Um, talk about a few of those examples and then the parallels you saw in fake news in the U.S. So w w as soon as I, I described Russian examples, then the, the 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 American echoes, I think, will will start to be clear. It's mostly about it's mostly about technique, and then there's an underlying philosophy. So, one of the techniques is you throw as many versions of a story against the wall as fast as you can, so that some simple obvious truth can't get through. Um, the good example of that is the shooting down of MH17, which was done by Russian technology and almost certainly by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. But in Russian media, they threw out five or six versions, some of them insane, like that the, the plane was already full of corpses in the CIA shot it down by remote control. Some of them more vaguely plausible, although not true. And at the end of the day, nobody knows what's going on. Another technique is to take advantage of the journalistic uh, preference for on the one hand, on the other hand, you bring in two or three perspectives. And some of the perspectives are so completely out of the box that they change the middle point of the discussion so that the middle point of the discussion is very, very far away from reality. Uh, another version is what, what the Russian diplomats like to call narrative. So in the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we had a fairly straightforward event. Russia invaded Ukraine. But rather than thinking about that event, we spent about six to nine months coming to grips with narratives, narratives like Ukraine is all about fascism or narratives like Ukraine is divided between East and West, things which not only weren't really true, or in the case of the first, not true at all, um, but which distracted us from engaging with reality. And the temptation, of course, is it's much more fun to think about whether Ukraine is divided between East and West than to actually formulate some kind of a response. So those are some of the tactics. There are others. The underlying philosophy, which is also going to sound more familiar in America than it would have a year or two ago, is um, to just generate massive distrust. Putin and the Russian elites understand that to have the rule of law, you have to have trust. And so they're going after trust. Um, they're trying to make everyone believe in his own version of reality. You've made these connections between uh, what happened with Russian fake news, uh, specifically how it how it uh, how it dealt with fake news in Ukraine and sort of created that narrative and how that bridges into what we saw in the election and after the election. Give us a little um, idea of, of how you make that connection. Yeah, I mean, the, the important thing about the, the war in Ukraine is that we we allowed the informational part to overwhelm us so that we didn't see the fairly simple event that took place. The fairly simple event that took place was that Russia invaded Ukraine, thereby breaking the European and the Western peace order. 
we let ourselves get distracted by the narratives that Russians pitch to us, like it's all about fascism, or if you're on the right, you were told it was all about homosexuality and decadence. Um, if you were German, you were told it was all about um, resisting uh, Nazi nostalgics. Depending on who you were, you were pitched some narrative. And too many assignment editors and too many journalists and too many Americans uh, tried to get those tried tried to find their way out of those stories rather than following the fairly simple thing that was happening. And it, it, what the Russians did domestically is also interesting. They were able to um, destroy fairly obvious events like the the, sh the shooting down of MH17 over Ukraine, which was done by um, Russian technology and almost certainly Russian soldiers. They pitched their own. Um, viewers, so many different versions of what happened that the, the the one thing which doesn't seem possible is the thing that actually happened. Now, my view is that there's a there's a direct connection between Ukraine in 2014 and America 2016 because the, what the Russians learned in Ukraine was that the actual invasion was harder than they thought. Ukraine turned out to be a real country. The Ukrainian army turned out to be a real, even if weak and disorganized army. It turned out to be hard to take casualties. But the informational campaign, which was directed against us, against the West, worked far better than they could have imagined. And that's what they continued. They continued to try to sow distrust um, by supporting these various narratives and these various false ideas in Europe and in the United States. Um, and, you know, you see the culmination of this with an increase of sophistication in their support of the Trump campaign, which, remember, is entirely negative. It's not that they're building up some positive version of Trump. It's that they're helping by way of Facebook and other platforms to spread all kinds of fake stories about Hillary Clinton. They're trying to change the what they call the psychosphere. They're trying to change the shape of the discussion so that things end up more the way that they want. So, I mean, we we because we misplayed Ukraine, um, we made we made this much more likely. We spent 2016 kind of wondering what was happening. What was happening was the same thing which had already happened to another country. We just weren't paying attention. How are we? Do, how is that uh, being kind of telegraphed to American uh, listeners, viewers, readers these days? I mean, remember in the past, uh, this is not anything new from the Russians. They've been very effective at this in the past, but obviously much more effective now, um, considering the technology they have to use. I mean, in the past, it was Vladimir Posner showing up on Donahue and, uh, you know, in a Brooklyn accent, giving the Soviet perspective. But you had to sort of seek that out. I mean, how do you see that kind of spreading now and the Russian point of view and, and, and kind of infiltrating the American mind. Yeah. So let me, let me start with the philosophy because you want to give credit where credit is due and this stuff is all very intelligent. The, the philosophy is if, if Russia can't achieve a rule of law state where people are going to have a voice in politics and have the hope for personal prosperity, then no one else is allowed to either. So the, the way that Russia has done this within Russia um, the way that Russia has managed to justify the, 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 the stratospheric levels of economic inequality um, and the lack of political participation is to create a closed information atmosphere where, where people are, are fed fake news and are told stories about the enmity of the outside world. What Russia does in foreign policy is that it exports this. It tries to educate Western societies to be distrustful, to believe in conspiracies, to doubt everything. And the ultimate idea is to get Americans and Europeans to where Russians are, namely to the point where we think, oh, well, it's all fake. 
The only the only truth is that everybody lies. And then we all become cynics, like we all become sophomores in college again. We doubt everything. We wear black T-shirts and so on. Um, and in that atmosphere, there can't be the rule of law. So th- that's that's what they're going for. And, they're, and, and the techniques are interesting because, as you say, it doesn't depend upon individuals. I mean, they certainly have their individuals in the United States. But what, because we're also addicted to the Internet these days, what they can do is learn by purchasing legally lots of data who reads what, who's going to be susceptible to what, and then pitch them certain stories in the right time in the right place, which, as it turns out, is what happened in Michigan and West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin at a very critical moment in our nation's history. So that brings us to to, um, President Trump and uh, your book on tyranny. You have 20 points in the book, and obviously um, we can't go over all of them, but you basically, you've explained fascism, and this is a very tough one, and I'm interested to hear your your sort of uh, definition on this. You have guys like Stanley Payne, you have all sorts of, you know, people who have written books on the definition of fashion, uh, you know, from Paxton to Payne, et cetera. It's very hard to get your hand around or get your brain around what fascism actually means. Oftentimes, it's just a political slur. You have three sort of characteristics that you identify as a sort of indifference to facts, a call to national unity, and uh, putting that face on globalization, which in the case of the Nazis, for instance, uh, were was most, most prominently the Jews. Uh, talk about that a little bit and how you see those echoes today. Yeah, no. So thanks for that. It's it's very important um, not to treat fascism as a yes or no question because it's very easy yeah, to come up with a list with 13 characteristics and then say, well, eight, nine, and eleven aren't present, so everything is everything's okay. I think it's it's important rather to to take seriously our our own heritage, which is it's not just European history far-right tendencies, um, white supremacy, and so on, were very important in the United States in the 20th century and still and still can be in the right circumstances. So I, what, what, I would, what I would point to um, would be seeing the history of fascism as a kind of intellectual resource where we can notice certain resonances and, and be concerned. So with Mr. Trump, there's the question of technique, how one addresses a rally, the repetitions, right? The chants, the, the, the lock her up, that sort of thing. Um, that is straight from fascist technique. Turning rallies into spectacles where you throw people out with a private security detail. That's exactly what the fascists did. It's exactly what the Nazis did as well. And enjoying it, right? That, that pleasure in the physical exclusion of the other, that's, that's fascist. And then, of course, the politics of, of globalization. You know, globalization is tough. It, you have to have some kind of an answer to it. One way to avoid having an answer is to say, look, it's not a challenge. It's a conspiracy. Um, it's the Jews or it's the Chinese or it's the Mexicans or it's the Muslims or whatever it might be. With Mr. Trump, it changes from, from day to day. I mean, one is tempted to say it changes from day to day, depending upon you know where Kushner is investing. But it changes from day to day. But that, that kind of politics where we're meant to not face globalization honestly, but rather to look to our neighbor as being part of an international conspiracy responsible for the problems of globalization, that, that's, very, that's very much present. So the, I, the listeners of this show know that uh, we have been <laughs> no friends of uh, Donald Trump here. But I just want to, uh, to uh, clarify a few things, because as I, as I said in the last question, I mean, fascism, Hitler, Nazism, of course, we have Internet 
rules uh, that exist of the, the first person to invoke Hitler in a political uh, argument uh, loses that argument. It doesn't mean, unfortunately, I think that's been taken to mean that you can't make those comparisons at all. Um, those characteristics to me that you, you outlined could also, uh, you know, Soviet communism meets, I think, those three um, in different ways, but but definitely meets those three. And I, I do think that oftentimes there's a reason we don't say that Donald Trump is like Salazar, is like Franco, because it doesn't resonate in the same way that Hitler does. When we, you've tried to, I think, give a more nuanced um, kind of look at this, but do you think that there is there is some problem with the constant reaching for George Bush as a fascist, Ronald Reagan as a fascist? And on the other side, you know, I went to Tea Party rallies as a journalist and I saw uh, Barack Obama being called a Maoist and being called a Stalinist and a Leninist and all these things. Do you I mean, this is a sort of weaponized thing. And obviously you're a historian. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a tough line to tread, isn't it? So, you know, it's hard for me not to write about Hitler because I'm a historian of the Holocaust. So it would be it'd be it'd be professionally awkward for me to try to write my books about the Holocaust without mentioning Hitler. I'm I'm coming to this from a different place. So for me, you know, mentioning if I mention Hitler, it's it's because there are certain resemblances. I'm not not because I'm playing the yes, no, up, up, down game, because the other side of the game you're talking about is when one person says, um, Trump is Hitler. Then the other person says, well, he's not wearing jackboots. And it's like that. That's the end of the conversation. Either it's a perfect resemblance or it's not. Uh, history is much broader than that. Um, there, there are certain things about Hitler's rise which are worth knowing about if you want to consider um, the risks that we face. I mean, one obvious one would be that Hitler came to power after a divided left lost an election that it was expected to win. You know, one can continue to tell the story that way. It doesn't mean it's exactly the same, but it means it's worth having your antenna out. The other way that history is broader, and I'm agreeing with you completely, is that it's not about just saying – is this like Hitler or any other case? It's about looking at the, the broader sweep of modern history and recognizing that democracies generally fail. They generally break down and then asking in what circumstance can they break down in on tyranny. I do focus a good deal on 1933 because it's an important case. But as, you, as you'll know, because you've read the book, I also focus on 1933 in the Soviet Union. So when I talk about the importance of the language, one of the examples I give is the dehumanization of the Soviet peasantry during collectivization. Um, when, I, when I talk about the importance of truth and daily action, I'm relying heavily on Václav Havel, the most important, I think, and thoughtful anti-communist dissident of the 1970s. So it's I, the, the whole point of the book is to reach back for all the wisdom that we have from the 20th century, rather than looking for a certain rhyme, which of course you're not going to find. When I, when I was reading your work, I was reminded of The Road to Serfdom, um, which as you know, is, is F.A. Hayek's uh, famous tract. And I, I also know that you, you wrote a, a piece about um, Hayek entitled uh, Grand Old Marxist and feel um, that Hayek is perhaps not, not the greatest of characters. One wonders if we don't run two risks. Uh, one is overlooking sort of the lesson that is in Hayek's Road to Serfdom, which perhaps you can comment on that in general, that there is a, a set of characteristics like uh, veneration of the state, like handing over too much control, uh, imperiling private property in search of certain higher aims, certain elevated goals like uh, alleviating poverty or addressing inequality, and that that can, in fact, lead to 
bad outcomes like fascism. I mean, that is the the sort of Hayekian meme. It's not that it is it's absolute that it will necessarily happen, but it's a question of sort of probability. And I wonder if there isn't potentially a missed opportunity in writing a book like this and not only drawing the contrast to Donald Trump, but perhaps finding the various ways in which Donald Trump is similar to many other contemporary politicians and the various ways in which any politician um, and perhaps the ones you least suspect are the ones that you should be um, particularly on guard against. Um, None of them are likely to wear jackboots again. That is a bad look. Um, But plenty of them are likely to promise you various things. If only you put them in control, they can um, save you. Um, So I I don't know what your, your thoughts might be on that. Okay, there's a lot in there, so let me let me take a crack at a few bits first. Uh, with the jackboots, you you'd be surprised. <laughs> I'm never actually, surprised. That's, that's I fair. Mean, not not only are there people who look good in jackboots, but there are actually <laughs> quite a few American fascists and and, and sure. fascists around the world who are still wearing the jackboots. But I mean, I take I take your general point there. Um, so with let, let me let me make two points. The first is for the skepticism of leadership. One doesn't have to go to Hayek. I, one can be very American and straightforward about this and start with the founders. The, the whole the, the reason why we have the system that we have is precisely skepticism about human nature and skepticism about tyranny and skepticism about the concentration of power. The, 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 the framers of our constitution assumed that politics was inevitable. That is, there's no magic formula that can get you out of politics. There's no correct decision that you can make which will make politics go away. Given that there's politics, how do you divide it up? How do you create, how do you create checks and balances? What kind of institutions do, do you need? Um, I, I consider myself to be in that tradition. So skeptical of, of human nature, learning from the 20th century about the various dark pathways that politics can go down accepting that politics is inevitable, that there's no way of wishing it away, that you can't just you say the word anarchism right, or libertarianism and make politics go away. It's always going to be there. And then asking, you know, what, what can we do, which brings me to Hayek. So with Hayek, I will, I'm going to agree about the dangers of the big story. You know, you won't be surprised that I'm, I'm, I'm hostile to the, the grand stories about how one, should, um, how one should sacrifice something today in the name of something tomorrow. And going back to an, an, earlier, an earlier question, it's of course true um, that both fascists and Bolsheviks had to lie about the today or indeed turn today into a lie in the, in the name of some larger, larger vision. Where I think Hayek falls a little bit um, into his own trap, or whether he, he is a little bit the thing that he describes, is the assumption that politics has to be some kind of a road, right? That it must be about means and ends. I mean, they're, they're, and it's a question of whether you fall for that or not. There, my view is rather different. So I would say that you can't absolutize any part of politics, including, for example, private property, because because politics is necessarily plural. The private property is going to be, in many cases, a good thing, right? I mean, I'm a historian of collectivization and famine. I understand that. On the other hand, there are other good things which are just not reconcilable to private property and where you're going to have to make some kind of compromise on private property. If one can accept that, then the question becomes, how do you sort out these various good things, which is a very different question for, from who it, – it's a different posture from the posture that says there's going to be one right idea or one path or one leader. 
I'm also I'm I'm skeptical of that. I'm I'm hostile to that. But what I think is unavoidable is trying to answer the question of how you reconcile the various good things that one might want in a society. There has to be a mechanism for that. Yeah, and and just just to a quick rejoinder, I mean the the fact is that I mean Hayek was willing to recognize that as well as and rather than being sort of a strident uh, conservative or, or or libertarian that didn't think the state should do anything. Um, was probably a hell of a lot more generous than most um, libertarians are willing to be with respect to the things he would concede that the state ought to do. I, I really do think that that ultimately it probably boils down to some sort of uh, probability, some calculus, that there is an essential sort of foundational framework that helps to keep people free, i.e. democracy, for example. I mean, I think you alluded to um, when uh, democracies, uh, when the votes fade away, like that is sort of the the point at which fascism begins to rise. And I think the Hayekian version of that might be to allude to the fact that when private property rights start to degrade, like that is a, a, a point at which you might want to be concerned. One thing I'm wondering about this, and this is the, the thing I'm always confronted with when I have these conversations about history, and um, you've talked a lot about um, you know, fake news and about, uh, you know, educating yourself. Don't believe the first thing you hear. Don't rely on on unreliable, um, you know, politicians, unreliable media, etc. The one thing I'm confronted with most frequently is that people don't really know much about history. They, we have to accept that as a fact. And I, in my own version of utopianism, would wish that everyone would read Bloodlands um, and, and read your books and the work of a number of other historians. Uh, but they don't. Is it incumbent upon you in a position like this where you're getting a lot of press for this book and, and I think rightfully so and having a lot of good debates about it to not only talk about the parallels but talk about the things that don't really line up? I mean obviously Germany in 1933 had you know five major elections just – I mean 1932 just you – know, the Nazis were losing uh, votes uh, when they – Hindenburg gave power to Hitler, gave emergency decree power after the Reichstag fire. Is all of this stuff to point out the things that, hey, you know, today um, – we're recording this on Thursday. Today, uh, Jim Comey was on Capitol Hill for two briefings, one public and one classified. Uh, it's a slightly different situation as you have many, many times acknowledged and I don't want to say that you haven't. But is it incumbent upon us to point out the things that are rather different between the situations? Uh, I'm going to uh, no, and I'm, I'm going to tell you why. Um, these are for me; these are two different vocations. So most of the time, I'm a historian. I, I, I spend my time, you know, in quiet places, reading documents or books. I try to make sense of moments that are in the past, and I, when I when I do so, it rearranges my view of the present. You know, rather than the other way around. I try very hard not to have my view of the present rearrange the past. I try to have it be the other. I try to have the past inform how I see the, the present. That's what I do 99% of the time. And that's, and that's one vocation. Um, so no, I don't feel like I need to stress how the past is different because that's what I do 99% of the time. What I'm doing with this book is, is not so much advancing, um, you know, a, a philosophical argument. Um, I, what I'm trying to do in this book is to provide guidance for action at a moment when I think action is necessary. And therefore, it's a, it's a, politi it's a political pamphlet. It's, it's not a history book. It's a, it's a historically informed and to some extent a philosophically informed political pamphlet. But it's but it's a it's a normative book. It's a book about what I think we ought to be doing. And so its structure is to draw from wise people facing challenging circumstances 
what we can, to draw from people who are generous enough to leave behind something from which we can make sense. Because after all, Victor Klemperer, you know, under Nazi rule, was not writing for himself. Um, Václav Havel, no one read Václav Havel in the 70s, much as we might romanticize it. He was writing for later generations who might be facing similar circumstances, which in some respects we are. So the point of the book is to bring out what we can from the 20th century. If I were to try to say, what are the things in the 20th century that are not present today when Comey's testifying, that would be a really uninteresting book and it would be totally incoherent. But my point is that there, my real point is there are two vocations, right? If let's say you're a neurologist and that somebody had a heart attack across the street, Maybe it's been 14 years since you went, went to medical school and you've never practiced, but it would still be your job to run across the street and try to do something. That's a little bit how I feel. I would rather be writing history books, but since we are where we are, I'm going to try to bring, the bear, bring, bring to bear the skills I can, the, the best that I can. Um, other people have other sets of skills, and, and that's fine. No, I just to clarify here, I don't mean that you would um, write something about the present day in the sense of, you know, um, a, a hearing with uh, Jim Comey. I just mean in the sense that, you know, you are not responsible for the things that people take away from your book. But I've talked to a few people that, that, that are really think we're barreling down the road to, to fascism and have cited you, I think, because maybe of the Bill Maher appearance or some other media outlet that hadn't read your book. But the, to, to take away the, the parallels with uh, fascism in 1933, my point is that, you know, at the same time there, we wouldn't have a Jim Comey-type hearing in the Reichstag anytime in 1933 or 1944, 1934, after political parties other than the National Socialist Party were banned. And one final uh, thing is I do recommend that everybody do read Victor Klemper because the, the larger point I do uh, agree with, that um, one should always be on guard against tyranny. And these, these lessons are... Um, you know, necessary to have at hand. Klemperer's uh, two books, actually a third volume. Most people don't know this because I don't think it was published in the U.S. about Klemperer's experience uh, in uh, Soviet-occupied East Germany, uh, which makes for even more depressing reading that the end of Klemperer's life was going to be under a different type of totalitarianism, not as bad for him as it, as it was living in Nazi Germany for, for, for those 12 years. But um, that's essentially what I mean is that is that I think that, that you know, fake news, misinformed people can be misinformed informed by a lot of things. And so I see a consistent thing with um, our enemies in politics. Now, the dissemination of this stuff is, is, is a lot clearer through Twitter, and it's a lot faster through Facebook. Um, but I have seen this through, through every uh, presidency that I've ever paid attention to. I think with the exception maybe of Bill Clinton. Am I wrong about that? Maybe George H.W. Bush that was not, was not compared to a, a, a fascist or a communist or something like that. But it's pretty common stuff, isn't I'm it? I'm sure mean, we'd find it. If I, we I'm sure we'd find it if we looked. But, it, but, you know, as common as I saw at Tea Party rallies of Barack Obama being compared to, to a Maoist, uh, Glenn Beck himself consistently uh, saying that he was a Maoist and not understanding Maoism. But do you see this as, as something that is just being weaponized in a new and different way? because of the modes of communication, and you see this throughout history. I mean, obviously, you see the parallels in Germany, but do you see it throughout American history, too? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what the it is, but let me, let me start with Obama. I mean, the, the thing which people were most likely to believe about Obama and still are most likely to believe about Obama is that he was a Muslim and that he was born in another country. And the reason why people believe those things is that people who they thought were authorities repeated them over and over again in the available technologies. I, I think it's I find it interesting for our present predicament to note that Trump's birther claims about Obama were actually repeated by Russian propaganda no later than 2010. They were helping him 
with with that one. What's what's different about the present would be have I think largely to do with our own physical behavior. I'm going to put it like that rather than making the technology responsible. 2000s. I, I agree with you that there are lots of continuities, but I think 2016 would be the first election where mainly it was what people saw on the screen that impelled them to pull the levers the way that they did. And obviously I can't prove this. It just, it comes from talking to people and canvassing and, you know, how, how difficult I found it to pull people away from the affirmation that they were getting from their Facebook feeds. But I think the fact that we have edged up to seven hours a day in front of screens is, is the problem or is a way of defining the problem. I'm pretty sure if we could get it down to five, all of our political behavior would change. And so again, like to keep the emphasis on responsibility, if our political action consisted more in getting out and talking to people, marching, neighborhood groups, whatever it might be, and less of being alone with the screen, I think that that itself would would change an awful lot. Now, I mean, we can talk about how technology has changed. The way the technology has mainly changed is that technology basically fragments. It fragments in the sense of tempting us to be alone alone, atomizing us, but it also fragments in the sense of deriving us towards general distrust. When there was the, the, the negative attitudes about both candidates were in, in, in large measure driven by things which were not true. And one candidate that was much greater than another, obviously. But in large measure, the, the, the negative attitude we had towards candidates had to do with the fact that the, 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 the advertising, the messaging which was happening was, be, was driving us towards, towards thinking things which might not have been the case. That's, that's new. And I mean, if you're going to – I'll have a libertarian moment now. One of the things which is most disturbing – is the way that the neuropsychology and the computer science is coming together in such a way that there really are now algorithms which which can predict how individuals will react. And given that that's true, you can then target people with certain kinds of news with a reasonable expectation they will react in a certain way. Th- these are the kinds of things which I think like for, that, 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 that philosophers have to come to terms with because it's not just you know calling people names. It's actually propaganda which is designed from the inside out starting from where we are as opposed to where the leader is. That's something which is new. Uh, Professor Senator, one final question for you. Um, this was a, a headline that shot around um, on s- sort of all of my uh, social media platforms. It was an interview that you gave uh, to Salon um, where you suggested that that there might be something like a Reichstag fire event allowing the Trump administration to grab more power. What drove you to that conclusion? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is that's, this is great because it helps me to go back to some of your earlier questions about history and what we should be writing about and and and, and what we pick and what we don't pick. Um, with the Reichstag fire, it, the Reichstag fire is an example of how not knowing history can make you defenseless because there are plenty of people who do know about the Reichstag fire. And, you know, Steve Bannon is one of them. Um, Vladimir Putin is another one of them. The Erdogan is another one of them. Pretty much if, if you are a, a national populist or you're a far right politician of a certain kind, the Reichstag fire is on page one of the playbook. Uh, the Reichstag fire shows in modern circumstances how a weak republic can become um, another sort of regime relatively quickly. I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to say it anyway, that um, the Weimar Republic still existed when Hitler became chancellor. It essentially ceases to exist when Hitler manages to have the state of emergency declared after a, ter- a confusing terrorist attack took place on the German parliament. Now, I think this is generically a risk throughout the 20th century. And again, um, this includes uh, you know the Kirov murder and Stalin as well. Throughout the 20th century, generically, the reality 
or the threat of terrorism has been used um, by leaders to make qualitative changes in the form of the political system. So this is always an issue, um, regardless of the leader. This is always something we should be watching out for generically. With Trump, there, there are two particular reasons why I would be concerned in early 2017. The first is his explicit admiration of the way that Russia handles terrorism. The way that Russia Russia handles terrorism is that Russia uses real, provoked, and faked terrorist incidents to consolidate an authoritarian regime. That's the Russian model. So it should be concerning to us that Mr. Trump praises it. Secondly, um, there's the question of what's going to be left if you have if you have a White House and a chief executive who have been quite clear about their lack of regard for the rule of law and their indifference to democratic procedures. And you also have, in my view, unfortunately, a situation where the Republican Party doesn't actually have attractive policies, um, which might be able to, 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 to give them normal credibility in a two-year election cycle. You're then, you then might have the kind of perfect storm where both the executive and the legislature could see, hmm, well, maybe it might be better for these elections to be held in some kind of exceptional circumstances. That's that's a scenario I'm 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 worried about. Partly because you know Bannon and Trump I think are the kinds of people who would be thinking like this in the first place, but also partly because um, a normal cycle of elections doesn't look particularly good for them. You see, this is why we have you on the show to clarify these things and um, the way, as we talked about the way news spreads these days, it spreads in a headline. And the your clarity on that's pretty interesting. Camille was vigorously shaking his head in agreement when you were talking about uh, the exploitation of, of, of terrorism, as we've seen quite a bit in this country in the past. And I think that it, that point that you made could potentially be flattened as there will be a, because people think of the Reichstag fire, not as uh, Mr. Funderluba actually doing it himself but creating some sort of fake event, a false flag event. Um, you obviously um, are not necessarily not right now not saying that. But uh, Professor Snyder, we uh, very much appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for uh, coming on the show. And I will advise all listeners, um, especially to read Bloodlands, because I mean, that that book really consumed me. And, uh, and I really loved it and gave it my best book of 2010. Thank you so much for coming on, Professor. It, Thank it was you. my pleasure. Yeah, thanks. For Thank you. And, I, and I second I second that endorsement. Just a remarkable book. I mean, the the way that you uh, paint that picture um, is pretty extraordinary. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of human suffering, but it never feels um, sort of pornographic. Um, there's something deeply personal and affecting uh, about the entire account, and I've I've powered through it over the course of the last several days. Yeah, Camille's um, been reading it's it all remarkable. Week. <laughs> so, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, Professor. Thank you. Very glad. Glad I could talk to you. The fifth column. So, um, Camille, I think that the, you know, I spend my, I spend my days, um, Mm -hmm. and I spent the last week arguing with people and I do it on camera and sometimes it gets cut down to little bites of me arguing with somebody in one question, but I do it most of the day. I spend my (laughs) hurling accusations of people as a matter of fact, and and I will in a later episode explain what happens. I have to wait for the piece to be edited. I actually had somebody walk out of an interview with me, (laughs) uh, promised me 45 minutes and gave me 14. Um, and I think our listeners will greatly enjoy who that was and the the context of it, but we had a limited amount of time with, uh, with, uh, Tim Snyder. Um, so I wanted to let him talk and I wanted, uh, to, to not, get into in a 20 minute uh, uh, period back and forth about things. But I figured we'd have a, a second to unpack here because the way we do this show, we're in a little studio and Camille and I are here. Uh, Matt Welch is, I think, sleeping under a bridge somewhere. <laughs> but we're sitting here and we're making wide eyed 
you know, looks at each other. <laughs> we're shaking our heads. We're skeptical. We're texting each other on our computers during it. So I want to do a quick wrap up. Um, you know, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I think Snyder's a brilliant guy. Um, I disagree with with a lot of 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 uh, his book and and um, his newest book on tyranny. I do like the general premise of, mm-hmm. you know, we should be on guard against tyranny. And I think that um, when people on the right say that, it's it's considered to be a scary apocalyptic thing where people right. are, you know, um, getting, you know, dried food and, and building shelters and getting guns. Um, but I think that generally right and left, it's always a sensible policy. I think the one thing that I would have if we had had time with him, he was in studio for an hour, I would have pushed back on is the idea, and I think maybe he misunderstood me. I probably not though. Um, the idea that one shouldn't point out the differences, because the differences are really important. I mean, mm-hmm. we can cherry pick moments in history. I mean, the reason I mentioned Comey's testimony today was that we saw the system in operation. Donald Trump cannot. Did did he do something that actually qualifies as a you know somebody who's trying to shut down? An investigation, if somebody is, you know, capital O, uh, obstruction of justice, possibly not. I mean, a mm-hmm. lot of legal scholars have said it doesn't look like it. But nevertheless, we're having this hearing. I mean, we do have a very robust system. He mentions the founders. The founders um, were quite good at this as constructing this. Not all this stuff comes from the founders. It was piled on later. But nevertheless, I mean, we don't see a system. We see a system where Tim Snyder writes a book and publishes it. Um, a year from now, I guess, would be the exact parallel because I think early in 1933, you know, keep in mind the Nazis took power in, in January 30th, I believe, 1933. The Reichstag fire happens soon thereafter. There's a plebiscite, a fake plebiscite in April. There's a lot of stuff that happens and, and a fake fake election in November, the following November, um, still in 1933. So a lot of that, you have some time to build up to it, but it was pretty quick. And to point out those differences, and again, Tim Snyder is not responsible mm-hmm. for what people do with the kind of nuance of his book and say, hey, Professor Tim Snyder says Nazism is coming. Therefore, I have an academic seal of approval on my very unacademic statement. OK, that's not he's not responsible for that. But it, I think it is incumbent upon historians to point out the pretty strong and stark differences. And the point that I made to him about other fascist leaders, I mean, he didn't dispute the fact that his three kind of elements of fascism could be applied to Bolshevism, could be applied to the Russian Revolution, which will be celebrating is the wrong word, its 100th anniversary of this year. All that stuff applied to Bolshevism too. Instead mm-hmm. of the Jew, the enemy was the kulak, the class enemy, the rich peasant, the landowners, etc. And they were dehumanized and they were systematically exterminated. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the national pride, the nationalism, the expansionism of, uh, of this. So you have the same thing. So there is an important difference there, isn't there? If we just say all these people have these same qualities, it, it flattens ideology. Does Donald Trump have some of those overlaps? Of course he does. But I think that's probably the case with a lot of populist leaders, right? Sure. Is it a fascist moment in America? Well, if that's the case, it's probably a fascist moment across Europe, too, and in Russia, et cetera. So I think that my difference with him is primarily on that one front. I mean, there's a number of other ones, but the big one would be if we are going to use 
this the, the history books as reference to the to the current moment, and we must. We we have to. We have by, to by necessity. By um, necessity. When he talked about uh, trying to take himself out of it and not so much take the present with him as he's trying to understand the past. Like I understand the exercise, but there's a sense yeah. in which this is futile. Sure, you can't actually do that, especially if you hope for it to resonate with people who are reading it in a contemporary context. Look, and I also think that. Um, I, I feel very, very squeamish about about you know batting him around a little yes, bit when agreed, he's agreed. when he's when he's not on the phone. And to clarify, we did that just because I wanted him to talk, and he had a very limited amount of time. He gave us twenty minutes. Yeah, uh, hopefully, he'll come back and, and, and chat some more. Yeah, so, I mean, I would love to have him again, and I would like to put these to him. I just wanted to get the, but I think it was good actually not to 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 get too deep into it because, you know, I get to, I get to clarify this one point. And it, it and it makes my point in a way that 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 thing that he said about the, about the Reichstag fire, the 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 match that literally and figuratively lit the end of German democracy in 1933. There could be a version of that. The Salon headline was historian Tim Snyder. It's pretty much inevitable that. And then they add their own that Trump will try to stage a coup and overthrow democracy. Well, not really. I mean, that's that that headline then went out to every other media outlet. I'm glad he clarified that politicians take advantage of situations, but this is as old as politics. They take advantage of bad situations, terrorist attacks, wars, attacks by other countries, um, you know, statements by other leaders. It does not, it, it's, there's nothing new about this and there's nothing particularly fascist about it. So I think that the danger in this is why use that event? Mm-hmm. Why use the event of the Reichstag fire? Why use 1933? Tim, Tim Snyder has a very good explanation for this because he's a historian of that period. Mm-hmm. But most everybody else is not a historian of that period. And they always use these same events. You could, why not use, you know, uh, Trujillo in, 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 you know, Dominican Republic. Right. Nobody has any idea who that is. Yeah. yeah. Why? It doesn't have the punch. So it's necessary. And Snyder's book has been, by the way, number one on Amazon. I don't think it is right now. I think actually Milo's book's number one on Amazon right now. Is that right? Yeah. I the, didn't realize that it just come out. Yeah. Well, it's pre-orders. Pre-sales. Okay. Got it. Uh, his self-published version. Uh, it's number one. I mean, you can sell a lot of books that way. Yeah. You can, I mean, there are not a lot of historians from Yale that are going on Bill Maher's show, right? So making those arguments through the prism of the Third Reich is punchy. Mm-hmm. Now, Snyder says, hey, by the way, guys, you guys read the book. Remember that I also talked about 1933 in the Soviet Union. Yes, he did. But you know who doesn't remember that? Everybody else who's talking about it. They're talking about the Nazi thing only, not talking about the Soviet Union. I, I don't want to oversell the nuance. I mean, this is, uh, and, and I don't want to, I don't, also don't want to, I don't want to punch him too hard while he's not here, but the book does yeah, conclude with a quote from Hamlet. Um, this, the, the time is out of joint, a cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. Thus Hamlet yet concludes, nay, come. Let's go together. The The book is a call to, call to arms. Um, and when I've seen him speak about this, uh, you can actually catch a video of him giving a, a talk at Yale um, where he teaches um, about uh, the book. He, he sort of gives this same uh, – he offers the same passage at the close. And the, the reason I, I brought up Hayek um, is not only because he wrote critically uh, about Hayek. But you just wanted to make this about well, his Hayek piece, Well, no. You? I mean Hayek, <laughs> Hayek is in, in a way because he's um, multi, multi-talented, um, interdisciplinary genius. Uh, he, he's writing about the same epoch. 
the same era, the same events. He's writing about Nazi Germanism and Nazi Germany and the rise of fascism. Contemporaneously, and, he's writing about it. Yeah, and the and the conclusions that he arrives at are sort of these broader these broader themes. The notion that trust, which he talks about, sort of the 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 fascist eroding trust, to mm-hmm. just trust is gone, and the only person you can trust is me to fix your problems. Um, that is certainly I, I concede that that is a way that someone might come to power sure. um, and that we might lose essential freedoms and end up with a result that is other than we expect. Um, it is certainly also possible. It just seems necessarily true to, that you have to concede that too much of the other thing where we're not atomistic, but we're all together, sure. all believing and working together, that once you have conceded all of the things um, to the, the central authority that you are in a more vulnerable state. Um, We have seen democracies reach tyrannical ends, and it is worth recognizing that both things are entirely possible. And I mean, the the big disagreement that he and I would have if we were to talk more um, is is about um, sort of private property as a bulwark. Um, I don't think democracy isn't a bulwark. I don't think democracy is sufficient as a sort of end goal. in, in much the same way, though, I, I also don't think private property is entirely sufficient. Mm. Um, but my argument, uh, because I'm a lunatic, is that it's mostly sufficient. Pretty yeah, much. I, I, look, <laughs> look I, I mean, and I think that your 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 point is is one that I think that and broadly that he might uh, that Tim Snyder might agree with. And I again, hope so. and again, we, we we didn't have him for very long, and, yeah. and he couldn't speak to this. Uh, I could have had that conversation for four hours, but I think that the book is. A good one. Worth I, writing for I, sure. I, I just don't think it applies to now in the way that he believes it does. Well, I don't I think, think it applies he, narrowly. I mean, if, I don't think it applies if, narrowly. If he, had, if he had widened the aperture and taken a look at, sure. at other candidates and their characteristics and was giving sort of a broader mandate to citizens to always be on guard, yeah. um, I would have appreciated it more. It's, it, it seems to compound this fundamental problem and this this deep concern that I have that people will believe once this present threat has gone that we can go back to business as usual and forget that part of the reason why Donald Trump is so dangerous is because of all of the the institutional inertia that was created. Um, The fact that executive power has been concentrated in the way that it has, the fact that Congress has abdicated the responsibilities it has, um, and again, it's, I, I suspect that we'd probably agree on, on a lot of that. So, yeah, I mean, there's a difference between neutering the courts as, as, um, the national socialists did in 1933. Yeah. Um, pretty quickly, actually. I mean, it, 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 it took a little bit, a little bit longer. I mean, one of the parallels that I think people like to make is that it came through the mechanisms of democracy. Well, yes, but no, uh-huh. here's the thing that's different about that is that a system that and I tried to get to this, and again, I was trying to remain not argumentative, just to get his point, his, his points out there. Mm-hmm. Um, people, listeners of this show have heard enough of me. Uh, <laughs> God knows that. <laughs> but but th- th- you know, when you look at what happened in ninety three, you know, the president, we had that this bifurcated system. Yeah, was the chancellor and the president. The president granted powers. Yeah, and there was a lot of backroom dealing. You know, the Nazis never had a majority. They had about 40 odd percent in the last free election. And those numbers were dropping. Right. Um, So there was a lot there was a lot of disappointment already. And seeing that, of course, the levers of power 
were seized. The judiciary was seized. Very important. And the yeah. army is taken over. I mean, you see this right now in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was supposed to be in Venezuela last week. Long story that I'll get to another time. And, and I didn't. I didn't get there, um, not because of me, but because of the Venezuelan government. But you see what's happening in Venezuela. I've been talking to people in Venezuela, two friends that were just there and just came back. And essentially, you know, what the entire country is waiting for is the army to be on side so they can get rid of the Maduro regime. You need systematically to neuter all these institutions or take them over. And what we see is that, you know, the expansion of executive power, you see Donald Trump coming in and immediately with his pen mm-hmm. deciding to do his pen in his phone, his which pen he's, in his he's phone. using to call James Comey. Yeah, call James not Comey. Yeah, yeah. Let's just <laughs> let's have some breakfast. Yeah. Let's hang out. It'll be fine. And yeah. everyone stay outside. <laughs> Jeff Sessions, stay outside. And, you know, this pen in which with executive orders, he's trying to write in his entire uh, platform. You know, he didn't neuter the judiciary. He said some nasty things about them. Mm-hmm. And he threatens the independence of it by saying these things. Yeah. But does he really threaten it in the long run? I believe in the sturdiness of the American institutions. I don't believe entirely in them. I don't, you know, that's why I think, you know, people like Tim Snyder are smart to write books like this. Mm-hmm. I don't sort of let myself get slack and say, all right, well, fine. Right? Yeah, It'll yeah, all yeah. turn out to be good in the end. But that doesn't mean they're not robust. And all of this stuff was pretty quickly knocked down. I mean, you're having these legal orders written by teenagers, basically, right? by Stephen Miller and these people who know nothing. The DOJ didn't even see them at the, the, the first run. They, they had no idea what was going on. And learning on the job and the courts are stepping in and and doing what they do. That could be politicized, but that's the way it goes. You know, so I I just don't think that I think the parallels are important. They don't frighten me at this point. Uh, They just don't. It does not frighten me. Um, I think that knowing a lot about this stuff and about the kind of the historiography and the people that have been looking at this stuff, people like like Professor Tim Snyder. Yeah, yeah, you're going to see parallels. You can yeah. find a lot of parallels in a lot of places. Do Are there more in this than in previous administrations? Absolutely, for sure. But I think those differences um, complicate the book and sell fewer copies. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, some of the, the, the nuance that you were pointing to, um, sort of not the fact that even like the Stalinists didn't necessarily obtain popular support in order to carry out their agenda. In some cases they were misleading. Yeah. In other cases, yeah. they simply just insisted on their will. Well, Stalinism especially, well, you know, in new people. Yeah. And communism especially is, yeah. is an interesting example because, because it doesn't, I mean, his point, which is how democracies become, you know, fragile and, 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 and you know, essentially become dictatorships or authoritarian countries. It's also important to point out the weak, weak foundations in which Germany kind of came to Nazism. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, 1919, you say you have, you know, a, a Treaty of Versailles is punishing Germany and, and mm-hmm. essentially occupying the Ruhr and making sure that they're not remilitarizing. They, the army can only be 100,000 people, et cetera. And, you know, I mean, the, the instability of that, there were coups that nobody even remembers, the cap putsch. I mean, people don't remember this stuff. Mm. There were, you know, he, he talks about, you know, shock troops pulling people out of rallies. That happened in that democratic um, system, quote unquote democratic system, that had just been an imperial system about a year before. So you had right-wing militias, you had left-wing militias. There were there were coups in, in Bella Kuhn in Hungary, a communist coups. There was a communist coup in Munich. Yeah. This was the cauldron in which this was was born out of is not something that is America in 2015. So that's a huge difference. And then Stalinism, for instance, 
is to his point, he talks about democracies, I mean, but he's also, this is something else, because Stalinism is not something that came out of, a de- of democratic institutions. There was no elections right. that brought the Bolsheviks to power. It was a series of coups and ultimately the October Revolution. And Stalin came to power by Lenin dying and Stalin killing all of, his, all of uh, those who would challenge him. And doing that pretty consistently until his death, death in 1953. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, that's straight up barrel the gun stuff. So I think the differences are really important. Yeah. Don't you? I, I do. No, no, I, I completely concur. Um, and, and also, I mean, depriving, depriving an entire class of citizens, an imaginary class of citizens of their, of their property uh, in order to empower the Absolutely. state so that the state could carry out its agenda, its grand plan to try and uh, create the paradise to which all other peoples of the world would be drawn. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, instead, you've got massive uh, graveyards um, well, in, and, in, an in prison camps. Yeah, an important point about this is that there's a lot of stupidity about this, a lot of stupidity from people on the right often when they say national socialism, it's the socialism, et cetera. Well, there's mm-hmm. a truth to that, but but they often mis- misunderstand it. I think that there's a book um, that I actually reviewed for a reason a long time ago uh, by a German historian named Götz Ali, uh, G O with the umlaut. T-Z. Not not the same Ali G. No, no, no. It's just oh, a reverse. Other, he was just guy. he was just fucking with us. Uh-huh. It's Goetz <laughs> Ali G. Um, and Goetz Ali wrote a book called Hitler's Willing. Uh, no, it's Hitler's. That's General Goldhagen. Uh, Hitler's beneficiaries. Yeah. And it's a book about. And he's a very very left wing historian. Incidentally, it's about the edifice that was created, the sort of welfare state edifice that was created um, by the Nazis, and essentially the big taxation schemes and the redistribution and how people were hooked into a system by giving them lots of things that they didn't previously have. And that was through government subsidy, basically. And it's a pretty nuanced and pretty interesting book. And I wrote a review of it, um, but you, you can you know, save your time reading the book if you want to read the review. But it's a, it, was, it was a controversial book, too. But it's that when people say national socialism, see, there's socialism in there. That's, that's nonsense. There is definitely a sort of baseline socialism when it comes to the economic policies of the Third Reich. And if you read um, a very, very good recent book by a guy named Peter Longerich, who wrote a book about Goebbels, a very fat book. But the first bit of it is pretty interesting because there's a moment in 1926, 1927, where the propaganda minister of the Third Reich, a name who's synonymous with, uh, you know, being a baddie, you hear it constantly referred to, you know, Breitbart, Goebbels, Bannon, Goebbels, etc., was uh, on the socialist side of, of national socialism, and he ultimately flipped. I mean, he was arguing for a more sort of socialist program amongst the Nazis. So it existed there too. But, but so, yeah, I mean, complicated stuff. And I think when you boil it down, you sell a lot of books. Yeah. Well, uh, interesting conversation, conversation worth having. Um, definitely a conversation worth listening to. You're welcome, damn it. Um, I think we're done. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Broken heart.